Well, hello. hello. Good afternoon, and, and welcome to Deadline Radio. Uh, my name is Alan Cockle. It's 1.30, Tuesday the 22nd, 1.30 in the afternoon. And we are once again, after two days of waiting, about, we hope, to board a helicopter to go back into the citadel, the old imperial city of Wei. This morning, once again, we started to get on a convoy. The earlier convoy, however, had been hit once again on the road between Fubai, where we are now, and Wei, and the second convoy was canceled. Helicopters also were held for a while this morning because the landing zone at the hospital in the Citadel is under fire. We understand now that some are going in and we hope to get on it. Again, welcome to Deadline Radio. My name's Alan Cockle, and this is a session about radio reporting. And yesterday, one of the editors of uh, one of the big programs said to me, so I'm hoping I'll get some tips on how to make my producers work faster. That's not what this is about. <coughs> and in fact, the, the emphasis here is really not on the deadline. It's on taking news reporting, where you don't get to choose the story for the most part. And tell, but tell, taking that story and telling it in an interesting way. Um, who here is working as a radio reporter now, however loosely you define radio reporter, doing news? And who has done it in the past or hopes to do it in the future? Great. Okay. Um, to tell you where I'm coming from, I work at WBUR. I'm a producer on a program called The Connection. Uh, I used to work on a program called Here and Now. I started out at Radio New Zealand before I was at WBUR. I've done some deadline reporting, some producing, some hosting, some a little bit of editing, some documentaries. So a little bit of everything, but I don't claim to be the master of this trade. So I want it to be a discussion and jump in. I know there are people in the room who have 
more experience than I do. So jump in and let's discuss things. We started out in 1968 listening to Dale Miner, who was reporting for WBAI in New York. Uh, the piece was The Battle for Hue, which was recorded during the Tet Offensive uh, during the Vietnam War. Let's go even further back to uh, 1945. This is Matthew Halton of the CBC, speaking from Germany. We left the brigade headquarters and went on through the Hock Vault, plowing through mud 18 inches deep. It's a thick, dark wood which will have Canadian memories forever. The ghost of Siegfried is said to wander here, and now there are others to wander with him. Sometimes it was very noisy, with mortars crashing into the woods as we made our careful way to the battalion headquarters. But sometimes it was quiet. A sudden snowstorm came swirling down on us out of a blue sky. And that, with the smell of the pines, gave us a sharp, nostalgic smell of home. We came to the regimental aid post just as a slightly wounded French-Canadian sergeant hobbled in. Are we winning? I asked. Sure, he yelled, we're winning, but I'm glad she's nearly finished. She's the hottest battle I see since long time, damn. We went into the RAP, in a wrecked house, and it was nice and warm in there, a haven from the battle. There was a fire in the stove where they were boiling water, and a radio was going, and I could smell steaks frying. But in one corner of the room there was a man lying under a blanket, twitching and trembling, and he was sobbing aloud. The M.O. took me into a corner, poured some rum for us, and told me the story of the man who was crying. Johnny's a stretcher-bearer, said the M.O., and like all stretcher-bearers, he's a hero. He won the M.M. on the Skelt, but he's broken at last. He and Billy came in an hour ago with a wounded man. They rescued him under heavy mortar fire, rescued him when even the fighting infantry were pinned in their slit trenches. Sometimes they wait till it's quieter, but this time they saw the fellow had a leg blown off, and they went out to get him. They got in here and put the stretcher down, and I went to work. When I'd finished, and the patient was on his way back in a jeep, I called for Johnny. He was shaking like a leaf. He came toward me and started to blubber and cry. I knew at once what it was. Johnny's guts were gone at last. At long, hard last, Johnny was through. The M.O. went on as I asked questions. Yes, there are four stretcher-bearers in a company. They're volunteers. They're heroes in the real sense of the word. Day after day, they get out of their slit trenches and go out into fire where you'd think nothing could live. Remember the two stretcher-bearers you were so interested in the other day? The two who came along the ditch through the mortar fire? Well, Johnny was one of them. But he'll never rescue wounded men again. Johnny's had it. It happens to the best men in the world if they go through enough battle. Unless, of course, it's a man who doesn't know fear. There are some men who don't know the meaning of fear. But the heroes are the men who know fear and still do their job. But you see, each time a man goes through an ordeal, though he overcomes fear and does his job, the memory or the effect of the ordeal is pushed into his subconscious, and the gate is barred and guarded by will. 
but the day comes when there have been too many ordeals. The will breaks and the gates fly open and fear and torment come swirling through and another good man is finished. Toward the end of a savage and grueling battle like this, he went on, there are more and more of such cases. Johnny's the second stretcher bearer to break today. Yesterday there was a company commander, a major. He'd been a superb soldier and a tower of strength to his regiment for many months. But yesterday he came in here and broke down and said he could face no more. With another man, the break took another form. He was belligerent. He wouldn't let us take his hand grenades away from him. It was a couple of hours before I could get close enough to give him an injection and put him to sleep. I was very glad when I got back to brigade and they told me that the hawk vault was all clear now, at last. This is Matthew Halton of the CBC, speaking from Germany. So, two different pieces of war reporting there, one from 68 and one from 45 in the last days of the European, last days of fighting in the European theater uh, in the Second World War, and pieces that are in some ways opposites of each other. One entirely scripted and entirely without sound other than the man reading the script, and one that's completely unscripted and, and backed by continuous sound but both pretty different from what we hear most of the time on NPR or BBC. And to my mind, both really effective storytelling. Would the pieces work today? Would either of those work today? Well, the second piece, I mean, is... Because essentially the first piece, something like the first piece could work, but the second piece is more of an essay, I would say. And for a news story... Like, you could start off, okay, they would tell the story of what happened to this poor guy, who's our character, but then we, and then we would have an expert saying, well, this is what happens to people, and then we would have to go, you know, well, what is the government doing about this? Well, are we going to help these people? I mean, I, you know, but the way it is, I don't think it would work. Yeah, I, I think, go ahead. Um, let me ask, we're being recorded here, so I have to ask you to use the microphone, if you wouldn't mind the microphone in the aisle. Place the home for pieces like the second piece, at least on the BBC, is from our own correspondent. I don't know if people know the programme, but it's normally five written essays like that. Um, and normally the top three will be pretty hard-edged, like that kind of piece. Uh, and I think the writing will, be of, uh, will aspire to the same quality, um, even if it doesn't quite get there. But it'll have all those same sort of qualities of the recollection of high-tent drama but, but done in a kind of very cool and very calm and very telling way. So there is still a place for it, but, n- but not, I think, in mainstream news. Uh, and maybe that's a shame. Well, I think that what we have right now is kind of like a combination of both, because um, the second one was too without proof, and I think that we need that kind of substance or texture for us to make it believable as news. And I think the first one was actually too saturated with sound that it was hard for us to focus. But I think that what we do nowadays and what we rely on is this, and I think maybe excessively, is um, framing. Just like we need to have things carefully boxed in. And so what happens is people narrate and then bring you into that that first scenario that we listen to. Um, But we need to have these very partitioned... um, uh, uh, Environments, otherwise, the the listener has a lot harder time these days. And I think, yeah, so that's my point. 
Yeah, let me pick up on a, a couple of things that I think about what people have said. I think you're right. The, the Matthew Halton, the CBC piece, was not straight reportage. He's doing a couple of interesting things there. One is that he's taken a character, and that, I believe, is real reporting, but he's taken that character and he's generalized him. And you'll see in that script, he continually slips out of talking about Joe, this guy, to a kind of generalized thing, which really makes it resonant. He goes from Joe the particular to the kind of universal experience. But as storytelling, for me at least, that piece still really works. And in fact, I have an Anne Garrels piece from NPR from the most recent Iraq War that I won't play. But it was from, is from the day that Baghdad fell, and it's just Anne Garrels reading a script. There's no sound. There's no tape. And it's a very similar kind of storytelling. And, and to my mind, because it's different from a lot of what we're hearing, it, it really stands out. And one of the things that I want to sort of get at in this session is, is ways to move away from the formula that we all know, the sound, the reporter, the sound, the reporter, the sound, the reporter, to the end of the piece, the accent and tracks. And in that sense, I like both of those pieces for that reason. I think it's interesting that you, you, you think that the, the first-person piece should be set aside into the, the, our own correspondent slot. It has, been, it has been, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about both of those pieces is that the reporter is completely in them, and so we're experiencing the scene to some extent through the reporter's eyes. And in the session we just had this morning about Jasper, Texas it sort of illustrates the importance of being honest about the, the filter that the reporter always is. Both those pieces managed to create a scene in a very effective way. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I don't, I'm not sure that first one creates a sense of scene. I feel like it gives sound a little bit too much credit to say that. I just felt like, okay, helicopter, helicopter, helicopter. I don't know where he is. I don't have any sense of any human presence apart from him, and I don't even have a sense of him, so I'm just, I'm, I would call into question, for me, how effective that first one was. Yeah, actually, you're right. You're absolutely right. It, it's not a scene, it's a, but it's the beginning of a sense of, of place and a sense of, of context and the kind of immediacy that the sound uh, adds, I think, and as it goes on, you're drawn into the piece by the, by the narrative, but you're right, there's no we don't know exactly where he's at. Let me play something that, another piece that creates a scene. This is another this war morning, piece. This morning, Army forces with the 2nd Battalion's Task Force 164 moved back to a strategically important intersection right before a bridge that leads to a suburb of the Iraqi city of Nejef. The armored U.S. troops moved in so fast this morning, the Iraqi fighters only had time to fire off a few rounds before racing back across the bridge large statue of Saddam Hussein, his right arm outstretched in a stiff military salute, sits at the bridge's eastern entrance. For the last four days, army forces have been destroying the Iraqi militia here while trying not to alienate civilians, especially the largely anti-Saddam Shiite majority. Standing near the bridge before today's combat began, Major Mike Donovan sounds optimistic that the stubborn pro-Saddam defenders are about to fall to U.S. forces. What we're being told by a local person here is that uh, that all that was left here is, is the militia, the local militia, and that the, the Ba'ath Party guys have all left. So the, the militia guys here, we're going to broadcast a surrender message. 
with our PSYOP team to get them to give it up. So they might get, might just surrender. You're hoping basically the, the last holdouts give up the ghost. You guys are basically occupy yeah, Naja. This could be it. You know, we got, we're working uh, both ends here. Soon, the Army's psychological operations team begins to broadcast from a loudspeaker atop its Humvee. Broadcasting, come on. The message implores the hardcore fighters across the bridge to come out with their hands up. Ten minutes later, the U.S. forces get the Iraqi answer to the surrender plea in the form of rocket-propelled grenades and a heavy barrage of mortar fire. This is the sound of an RPG whizzing overhead before the tape goes blank as this reporter dives behind a Humvee. There's confusion as these ground troops scramble to take cover near a cement wall. Militiamen firing on U.S. positions here on the outskirts of Najaf. Okay. Some soldiers take cover inside a thick-walled, one-roomed Iraqi police station near the bridge. We're lucky the Iraqis can't shoot worth shit, soldier says, while pointing his 240 Bravo machine gun out the small back window. It looks like the Iraqis left here in a hurry, as their gear is scattered across the cement floor. We're inside a police station bunker complex. The Iraqi soldiers occupy. There's a RPG fire uh, rocket launcher. Box of RPGs. Soldier with a submachine gun keeping guard about the, away from the window, about four feet away from me. RPGs on the ground, spent RPGs, obviously an Iraqi position, even last night. One of the U.S. Army's psychological operations translators, who minutes earlier was broadcasting the surrender plea, asked the soldier if we're safe here. I've got you, the soldier says calmly, scanning the palm tree grove outside. This thing can throw a thousand rounds downrange in a minute. Back inside is Abrams' tank. Major Donovan prepares to use much bigger firepower to take on at least one of the Iraqi mortar positions. We, we can see the guy. We're getting ready to take shot. That ground-shaking direct hit slowed, but did not stop the Iraqi mortar and RPG fire, which continued for several more hours. U.S. forces responded with more tank as well as mortar fire. At dusk tonight, a huge billow of black smoke floats over the Negev area. That smoke is the work of another armored company with the task force named Cobra. The company fought its way into Negev and took detailed grid coordinates of a building where Iraqi fighters were holed up. Soon after, U.S. artillery turned that bunker complex into a burning pile. But there are still no surrender flags around here. The hardcore Saddam loyalists seem to want to fight to the death. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, with the 3rd Infantry Division's Armored Task Force 164 near Negev, Iraq. So, Eric Westervelt, an NPR piece from the most recent Iraq war. And there's a couple of really interesting things about that piece. One is that at some points it sounds a lot like an NPR piece, like a lot of NPR pieces. And at other points it really lives. And I suspect you'll agree that the points where it really lives is where we're experiencing it along with 
Westervelt, where he leaves himself in the tape, and we're right there with him. The other thing that I noticed when I listened to that piece is we're almost a minute into it before there's the first sound. And that's where my ears sort of wake up and go, oh, wait, 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 what's going on here? And start to pay attention. So the sound really does focus you on what's going on and bring you into the piece. Um, a couple of other interesting things is are at one point he dives behind a truck. He says an RPG goes overhead, and, and this reporter dives behind a truck, which is an interesting way to put it. Why do you think he did that, and does it work? Why didn't he say, I dove behind a truck? It sort of jars, yeah. What's the... critical, because when, you know, so what, what they tell us is that NPR rules are really like, we don't want to use language that the listener would find shocking or that would make them distracted from your story. So you do all these things to kind of cater to the listener, and then you're going to say, this reporter? Like, it, it's just... It makes no sense to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you can argue it either way, actually. There is... It, it, it jars on the ear, and you notice it. So in that sense, it doesn't work. On the other hand, I think the reason Eric probably did that is because he didn't want it to be about him. He didn't want to be, you know, look at me, the big war reporter diving behind a truck. So by extracting himself from it, say, not saying, I dove behind a truck, but this reporter dove behind a truck it distances him a little bit from the scene, and I think that's why it's there. And I think you can argue either way whether that works. The, the problem with it, is I thought he meant there was somebody else who was on the scene mm-hmm. who called mm-hmm. and said, you know, mm-hmm. Al Jazeera, and died, you know, and this is the tape he got. And that's why I think it's a bad use of words. What should he have done? So I, 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 you know, where my tape runs out. Right, like that. right. He put himself in my tape machine. I disconnected. So yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fallacy also, that it's not about him. I mean, it, it, it's inherently about him. He's telling us. I mean, that's just silly. I think that bothers me the most about the news reporting is the theory of this objective report. I mean, it's not. It's your account being Yeah, and as we're hearing, it actually becomes, in many ways, more effective reporting when we're experiencing it through the the way the reporter is experiencing it. What's what's interesting to me about this is that it seems like so much of news reporting is about, you know, making sense of things, like making sense of events that are happening in the world and presenting them to the listener in a way that we can make sense of it. But with war, especially war reporting, it seems like what's actually happening when he's describing is this chaos, you know, that doesn't really make any sense. And and that to me is what's interesting about that piece is that tension between the moments of chaos and the moments of information where, you know, it's just these numbers of like the infantry, infantry and what's happening where he is, but it's really just chaos. Like that's kind of what this piece is about. And also, I, mean, I think the, the, the pretense of objectivity in this piece is ridiculous. Um, it's because he's a classic embedded reporter and he uses all this military jargon that he's obviously just absorbed. Uh, 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 and he expects us to know what a 240 b Bravo rifle is. Uh, and he expects us to know what psyops are and things like that because he's been with the military too long. So, 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 so try and pretend he's objective outside the situation that makes no sense, I think. I mean, it's good reporting, but still, it's a problem. It is good reporting, and and let me say one thing here, that it's hard to do this, and we all know that. It's hard to do this, and it's hard to do it on deadline, and to critique these pieces is in no way to criticize Westervelt or anyone else we're going to hear today. Everything I've chosen is good for one reason or another, and and, uh, 
and the accent tracks formula, which I think we all agree is a little bit tired, itself probably started as a really fresh way to tell a story on the radio. What, a, what if, instead of Matthew Halton just telling the story, if he actually introduced tape of one of the people he was talking about? I suspect the first time and the first many years that was used, it really stood out as fantastic storytelling on the radio. So there's no right or wrong answer. It's a question of not slipping into habits and, and conventions. But let's, let's stay with this theme of putting the reporter into the scene and listen to a piece from uh, a WBUR reporter, Monica Brady-Meyerhoff. There's been a tragic end to efforts to save a pod of pilot whales on Cape Cod. After three strandings, all 56 whales are dead. The whales first stranded themselves Monday on a beach in Dennis. Volunteers managed to free the majority of them, but the group came ashore again yesterday morning on the East Ham Wellfleet line. This time, two dozen whales died, but the rest were guided back out to deep water. Then, just a few hours later, the whales beached themselves again in a nearby salt marsh. Six died of shock and exposure, and veterinarians euthanized the rest saying the whales were too traumatized to be rescued one more time. WBUR's Monica Brady-Meyerov was in the water with the volunteers early in the day as they tried to save the whales. She files this report. This is the sound of pilot whales in distress. On a sandy shoal near a marsh, some 40 whales are stuck in the sand. It's low tide, the noonday sun is beating down, and the temperature is over 90. The whales' black, blubberous backs are peeling. Clusters of two or three volunteers take care of each whale, splashing them with water, keeping them upright, and waiting for the tide to come in. As the water's getting high, can I have everybody's attention? Let's start orienting all the animals with their heads facing out. Most of the whales are together in a tight group, and volunteers can easily spin them around to face seaward. But one whale is stuck farther away, closer to shore, and he's bigger than the others. This is whale number 571. The animal has a red identification tag and a yellow X on its dorsal fin, indicating it's in distress. The water is shallow here, and half of the whale is baking in the sun. Two volunteers scoop water onto it to try to keep it cool. Soon more volunteers join them, and together they try to move number 571 out to sea. They squat down beside this 18-foot mammal and grab it under its front fins. They grunt as they try to move the whale, which weighs about a ton, through the water. The water right now is up to my thighs, and I'm standing about 10 feet from this whale, and now seven rescuers trying to get whale number 571 back to the rest of its pod. Are you guys trying to move this animal? Excuse me. Okay. Do you have the tip of his flipper? I'm at the tip. Can you pull it up a little bit? No, it's the tip of his flipper. Okay, yep, it's up. Okay, thank you. There are now six volunteers helping move whale 571 off this sandbar. He's the last one stuck. All the rest are out in the pod and ready to swim out to sea, but they're not giving up on this one, and they're moving him about a centimeter at a time. 
Ready? One, Steady. Two, three. They're now trying a rolling motion on the whale, a back and forth, a gentle back and forth, to try to rock it off the sandbar. Maybe just rocking back and forth motion is what we need. It's like taking a car out of the sand. Okay? This way? Back this way. That's okay. That's, that's now okay. Up. Yep, that's it. And then try to go forward with the roll. Okay, now back the other way. We're going forward. Forward with the roll. As volunteers struggle to save this whale, the tide is rapidly rising, and the majority of the whales have been floated further out into the bay. Other than 571, the only whales left near shore have died or been euthanized. Then suddenly, the decision is made that it's too late to help 571 join the pod. Dr. Roger Williams, a veterinarian from the Woods Hole Science Aquarium, approaches with a needle and syringe. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and inject solution. Okay, there's usually a thrashing response right afterwards. Uh, so you want to make sure that you can get clear and you're away from the flu. You need help? Well, 571 is not making it. He's being euthanized. Should I let her just go down? That's okay. Let her go down. One woman holds the fin while the male veterinarian is injecting the solution into his, his tail. The veterinarian is marking the time of death of 1.26. The whale slowly curls over to the left side and now appears to be dead. That, that was a, yes, that animal was just euthanized so that it would no longer call the other animals back to shore. So in a hope to support whatever hope we have for the pot out there, this one was humanely put to sleep. Now that whale 571 has been euthanized, the rest of the whales have a better chance of reforming their pod and swimming out to sea as the tide comes in. Once volunteers have moved more than two dozen living whales out to sea, they throw ropes around the 14 dead whales, including number 571, and drag them to shore. But just a few hours later, the surviving whales get turned around again and beach themselves in a nearby salt marsh. By early evening, the saga is over. All the whales are dead. Veterinarians say the last whales weren't fit to survive. Some died of shock. The rest were euthanized. For WBUR, I'm Monica Brady-Meyerov. So, some really great things there. And I don't know about you, I find every time I listen to that piece, I get tears in my eyes when that whale dies. And because Monica is right there, and she is... You can hear it in her voice. She's being moved by that experience. But every time Monica steps back and gives us a track from the studio, I'm rudely yanked out of the thing, and the spell is completely broken. It's awful. So, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's, she, was, she, was, she was sabotaged by the intro to the piece, which had a couple of things wrong with it. It was way too long, and it gave away the ending. Um, and I spoke to Monica and I said, you know, did you think about leaving the payoff, you know, to the end of your piece and, and not giving it away in the intro? And she said, the reason we did that is that it had been all over the, this whale stranding had been all over the news for three days. And we just felt that we, people knew that we couldn't withhold it and, and play a game. So there's a reason it's there, but it, it works against the piece. It does. Yeah. And, and the other thing that works against the piece is that it has this beautiful end when the whale dies. 
and then Monica tells the rest of the story, which at least could have been left to the host to say, oh yeah, the rest of the whales died too, and you would have been left at the end of the piece with the sort of moving experience that she's had there. So who's the main character in this? Whale 571. Whale 571, yeah. So it's an interesting editorial decision there. There are ten whales on this beach, and Monica only talks about one of them. There are all these volunteers who have been out there for days working to save these whales, and we don't get to know any of them. There's a veterinarian who I don't think is even named. It's just the veterinarian. Oh, was he named? All right. Okay. Wrong about that. But the point is that she chose the most compelling character and told the story of that character and, and left out the, the rest of the story that what would we have gained by knowing who those, those volunteers were. It would have been a different kind of story, and I think she chose the best kind of story she could tell. Now, she's in a difficult position. She goes out to do this story. It's a real deadline piece. She went out. It was a two-hour drive from Boston, then a boat ride out to where the whales were. She was there for a couple of hours and then had to get all the way back and file for the next morning. And she said, I didn't go out planning to record my tracks while I was out there, or the story while I was out there. In fact, I didn't want to do the story at all, she said. But I got out there and I just got really involved and it felt like the right thing to do. And I think it clearly was the right thing to do. And so at that point, she had to try and tell as much of the story as she could in situ. But clearly she found herself back at the station feeling, I need to add information for this to make sense. And then she's in a difficult position because she has to take herself out of the scene to tell that story. So what could she have done to not have to do that? Any ideas? Um, This doesn't answer your whole question, but part of... She didn't have to put her, her studio self in as much as she did, like when she said... You know, he grunts as he picks it up. But she could have lost that line and just said, you know, he's set it up and then just gotten... We know that he's grunting because he's trying to pick it up. Yeah, there are a few lines like that. The very first line in the piece is, this is the sound of a stranded whale. Right. We all know what a a stranded whale sounds like. We could have just had the sound, yeah. But I don't know. I mean, that's something I struggle with a lot when I... I, I've tried to do a couple stand-ups, and it's really hard, so... I would love the tips. Well, one idea I had listening to this is if we had to have someone adding a layer of narration over the top of the scene, did it have to be Monica? Could the host of the show have dropped in and said, and then this happened, and then we're aware of a continuous scene where Monica's in it, and the host signposts us along? It's not something that we do much in news programs. It's done in the features. Uh, It's a classic sort of This American Life way of telling a story, isn't it? But I think it might have worked really well there. Then Monica remains in the scene. Another thing she does there that I think is really effective is she adds a timeline, at least at the start. She gives the time, so you, you, you feel the, the progress of time. Other thoughts on that? Well, one thing please, please use the microphone. Oh, I think the Monica, on, the Monica doing her tracks on site versus the Monica doing her tracks in the studio sound particularly different because she doesn't ever include herself questioning. And if she included herself on tape, it would have softened. You were so like, oh, God, she's sucky in the studio because there wasn't anything else. And if there had been, if you sort of saw her interacting with them more, it would sort of soften the difference. Yeah, she could have left, could have left even more of herself on the tape. 
a different sound. Um, I was oh, I, I was thinking I'm not familiar with the with the show that it would be for, but this was a morning edition piece. Okay, um, I don't know if you use the uh, tape talk f- format, but something like this where you can actually put yourself in, because she had such fantastic uh, tape. Um, speech. It might have been back it, useful. Sorry. That might have been useful as as well to talk to talk with the host in studio and throw to tape in that way. And that way, you're bring, she can bring herself into it, and it's still yeah. you're still experiencing it in yeah. that way. It depends on people's ethics, journalistic ethics, but, but I personally think this is okay. Is if at the end, you know, the, the, the whales died, she's recorded these pieces, she realised that's what she wants. She could have recorded the earlier pieces then and there uh, the, the, as stand-ups before she went back. And so she might have been on the beach for another hour uh, um, or half an hour or whatever, but it would have been worth it. Um, Absolutely. And I, I think that's sort of ethically okay. Yeah. Let's listen to another piece where this time the reporter remains in the scene uh, the entire time. In Manila, there were also wide... Actually, I'm sorry. Quick, quick reminder, quick history lesson. It's the Philippines. It's 1986. Ferdinand Marcos, uh, the dictator, has called a snap election, expecting to remain in power, expecting to be able to manipulate the results. The opposition has quickly and effectively become organized, and it's turned into a real election with monitors there. And this is polling day. And uh, Gary Covino, who was then with NPR, has ended up in a place where they are about to start counting ballots. And some of the Marcos people try to hijack the poll. And he refers in here to NAMFRA, which is the elections commission who were trying to maintain the honesty. Back in Manila, there were also widespread attempts at election fraud and further harassment of voters. Some of the most flagrant incidents occurred in the Makati area of the city, an Aquino stronghold. At Guavo Guadalupe Elementary School, Namfrel poll-watching volunteers battled with the government's KBL party when KBL members <coughs> tried to remove the official ballot boxes. NPR's Gary Cavino reports. I got to the Nuevo Guadalupe Elementary School in the Makati area of Manila just after 3 p.m., the official poll closing time. Dozens of NAMFRO workers were trying to make their way to the upper floors of the school, to the classrooms where the ballot boxes would be opened and the ballots counted. This is how it went. What's happening right now? No, apparently it's been taken over by a group of people who've uh, earlier, um, how would you say, uh, mauled some of the Namfrel volunteers. And uh, now we've come up and uh, some people want to take a look at the ballot boxes or whatever, and apparently they refuse to allow people to get even near any of the precincts. So what's happening now is a lot of the uh, Namfrel volunteers are, in, are either being harassed or being mauled or being clubbed. That's right. So who is up there? Uh, those apparently are KBL sympathizers. What are you going to try and do? I know they'd like to rescue some of the volunteers who are here. Some of them are still up there? Yeah, some of them are up there. Some of them are stuck inside some of the rooms. They're scared to come out. So actually, it's just a, it's a group of people here who'd like to come and ask the volunteers. They might as well come out because there's nothing much they can do at this time. The march up the stairs is being led by a guy with a pink chair. Several people now carrying chairs, sticks. One guy has a 
Shovel. Chairs being thrown around. Can't see who's at the other end of the hall. Workers charging down the hall now, picking up grade school chairs as they run, throwing them against a gate in the hallway. I'm going to move back a little. Place to go is upstairs. What's happening right now is the Namco people are telling their volunteers who are locked inside these classrooms to come out that it's safe. Open it! What's in there? It's goddamn shit. What's in there? What's going on? Goons. Goons are in there. Goons. Open it! Force it! Force! Do they have ballot boxes in there? Uh-huh. We're in front of room 301, the classroom of Miss Winto. People are trying to break the door down to get at the ballot boxes, whatever poll watchers and whatever KBL are inside. Door is opened. crush at the doorway. I can't see exactly what's going on inside. Right. Get ready. Here we go into the door. All right. The search is on for the ballot box. Everyone gathered around a small voting booth. The nun here is guarding the box. She's got her habit on with a Namfeld t-shirt over it. She said they hid the box in the corner here and they've been guarding it. And, uh, members of the Metropolitan Police Force with rifles. So it's the chief of police. Detachment in this area. Wow, okay. All right, we're going to follow the chief. Amphro people uh, slowly coming out of classrooms down this hallway, coming out from behind locked doors. Several of the volunteers now following behind the members of the police force, dodging broken chairs. Police have put their guns away, but some of the Namfro people are holding on to their two-by-fours. What are you doing right now? Uh, what do you mean? I'm, I'm trying to keep the box where it's supposed to be. Are you uh, a teacher? No, I'm a housewife who's volunteered for the UNIDO. To be an inspector. Did you know what you were getting into when you volunteered? I thought I did, but now that it actually happened, I don't think... I, but at least I can say I've tried, you know. We've all done our part. 
Well, you feel proud that you managed to save that thing? Oh, yes. I'm proud of the men who guarded us because if they, man if they got in, I don't think I would have uh, risked my life, you know? When people are armed, you can't fight them. All right. What they're doing now is taking a big, long table, clearing off the broken boards, pieces of glass, uh, wiping up the spilled ink. They're going to put the box on there, and they'll start the official counting. The ballots in that box by law are supposed to be counted in this room before the ballots and the results are then moved to a central area in this part of Manila. The, uh, the women who guarded the box are now setting up at the table and this place is starting to look like a polling place in the United States. It's 3.40 p.m. and right now the counting of the ballots is finally going on, slowly and calmly. This is Gary Cavino in room 301 of Nuevo Guadalupe Elementary School, Makati, Manila. So Gary Covino was uh, an editor and a producer in the early days of NPR. He was one of David Isay's early mentors and I think is still his editor. And he started a program called The Wild Room with Ira Glass that was a forerunner of This American Life. So he's a guy who knows how to tell a story on the radio. And this is Gary. So we go walking, we start walking up the stairs. I've taken about three or four steps up these concrete stairs in this echoey stairway. And then I notice that <laughs> the people I'm walking up the stairs with are carrying makeshift weapons, mostly wooden chairs. And at that point, I had these two instant, not even completely conscious thoughts. The first of which was, uh-oh. The second of which was, I should probably start talking. And... I had done a lot of live radio in my life. So the notion of talking into a microphone as if it was you know, live going out over the air was not an alien notion to me. And all I could do really was, since I had no information, I had no idea what was going on or why, um, I basically could only at that point just describe what I could see. Occasionally, if I wound up next to somebody uh, in the midst of all this chaos, I would point my mic at them and just say, you know, what is going on up here? Um, at one point, one of the Marcos people uh, grabbed a chair from somewhere in the darkness and threw it, and it buzzed about a, an inch away from my right ear. And uh, if you hear the story, you'll hear some little bit where there's a lot of chaos and a lot of noise, and then you hear me just sort of say under my breath to myself, um, I think I'm going to move back a little. And that was my reaction to the chair almost smashing me in the head. Anyway, so there's this pitch battle. The Nafro people win. They drive the Marcos people out of the hallway and out of the school. And at that point was when I actually had to make my first real conscious editorial slash production decision, which is, okay, what do I do? Because there are many, many hallways in this school. There's stuff like this happening in all of them. What do I do? What am I going to do with this stuff? 
I think that I already had notions in my head. This could be a self-contained story unto itself. Mm-hmm. You had a you had a scene. You had one small piece of the big picture, sort of vividly described. Well, at one or two. The other thing was when things calmed down in the hallway a little bit. I was able to talk to one of the NAMFRO leaders, and he filled me in on what had actually happened, what, what the situation had been that I'd walked into. And when you, when you hear the piece, that's actually way up near the top of the piece. It didn't happen near the top of what happened. But we put it there so that people in the audience could understand what was going to happen later in the tape. So when I decided at that point, my big decision was, all right, I could go all around the school and see what's happening. I think what I'll do is, if this is actually potentially a story unto itself... I will stay at this classroom, and I will try to follow pretty much just what happens now in this classroom, with this classroom, with the people in that classroom. So that's what I did. Now, the other decision I made, and again, I made it without much thought. It just was sort of instinct and seemed like the perfect thing to do was, well, if they do use this story as a self-contained story, everything I say should be from this location. I don't want to go back to the hotel and record narration later. Why not? Well, you know, at the time, I didn't think about it. But I think the reason I probably didn't think about it was was that one of the things that I know about radio that works the best and stories that work the best and things that matter to people and stay with them is no matter what the, the actual format of the story or the subject or what it's about, the best radio stories and when radio is really being used as a medium is when... You put something on the air, and you don't just convey facts and information to people, and you don't just give them snippets of experience or emotion or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's when you use whatever the material you have, and it doesn't have to be a riot in the Philippines to work this way. You use the material you have. You get material, and you use it so that what really happens is that the listener is thrown into the middle of something which they actually experience. They're not just told about it. They experience it. It's like they are there. And you use whatever elements you have to put them right there and make them not just know about what the story is and what you're conveying, but to actually feel it and see it and sense it and experience it as if they were right in the room or in the field or wherever, you know, wherever it was. So I just thought, well, you know, if I go back, if they do want to use this as a piece, it should mostly be taped from this place. I don't want to put narration on top of it that I record in the studio because it's going to sound completely different. If they are going to use this, I want every single element to be here. And if there's going to be like, you know, a beginning and end or a top and a bottom from me on this. Mm-hmm. It has to be recorded before I leave. So one of the things I, I did while I was waiting for them to start counting the ballots was I started, uh, just wrote down on a note paper, a beginning and an end. But I decided, you know, um, I don't know in the end what's this gonna, what this is going to sound like on the air, but all I know is a lot has happened during the, the period I've been in this school. And so my notion about how to possibly to convey that would be at the beginning of the piece to say what time I arrived, mm-hmm. which also was the poll closing time, so that's mm-hmm. a good bit of information, and what time I was ending my report. So in doing it this way, you, in, in leaning towards creating a continuous realistic scene, you make a choice not to include the usual sort of 
repertorial facts. Do you think that that's something that we should do more of? Um, yeah, when possible. I will say this, that I didn't have to worry about that because we had been there for some time reporting. I mean, whatever repertorial facts that I was able to gather or that were appropriate to that story are actually in that story. You know, it's not minus facts. What was the reaction to the piece? Well, um, people at NPR just went bonkers. <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> As opposed to the way they usually go bonkers. Um, you know, it was just, I mean, it's not the type of thing that their, their type of people tend to do. So. Why is that, do you think? Um, because most of them, when they come into the place, many of the reporters have never been on the radio. The people who have radio backgrounds have been doing NPR-type straight journalistic radio and have not done live radio, have not thought of the radio as a place where you just open a mic and say things, either just you know by yourself in the studio or in the middle of some situation. It's a whole alien world to them. How do you write differently for radio than the printed page? Radio writing is not the same as uh, writing for print, obviously. It's, mm. it's intelligent talking, but it's talking. It's not writing. That doesn't mean that you have to talk like George Bush and you know, that everything has to be monosyllables. But it has to sound natural. And it has to be completely integrated with the other elements around it. The, I never write anything on any story I ever do until all my tape has been cut, selected and cut. All my sound has been pulled out. The entire story has been structured. And um, I know exactly what everything's going to sound like. And then the writing is after that. Because I think of writing as really as one more of the sounds of a piece. Yeah. Every story is different. Every story has a sort of most appropriate or perfect way to be told. It's not the same structure or form every single time. What do you see as the weaknesses of the way news is reported now on radio? There's no life to it. Yeah. Well, there's, there's two weaknesses. First of all, there are a bunch of wimps who don't tell the truth about most things <laughs> or are afraid to go out and look for the stories that actually do convey the truth. So editorially, it's just way, 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 way wimpier, which is too damn bad. And then the other thing is, um, tell me your question again. <laughs> they had a good answer. <laughs> the question is, what do you think of what we're hearing uh, now? Yeah, and I said there's no life to it. And the other yeah. reason there's no life to it is... There is no longer any encouragement of much of any sense of adventure about the form in which you put something on the radio. When I first went to NPR, which was right at the end of 1979, we were constantly trying to think of how to do things in a new way, or not just to do the same old stuff. And it wasn't just with special stories, it was with every story. There wasn't this notion which I think is a false one, which I think has grown up in the system now, where there's journalism, and then there's a big wall, and then on the other side of the, the wall is, like, art. Right. You know, that different stuff that everybody loves and that they cite constantly during fundraisers. Right. And there's a, a wall between them, and they are in different worlds. We didn't have that notion at all. It was, you tried to use the radio in the most interesting way on any story. If you were talking to a young reporter or producer... What would you tell them about how to, you know, tell me a story that doesn't sound like everything else? Well, I would, um, I used to do a uh, workshop years ago, and I had a whole bunch of examples and things of this, and I, I believe it was the 10 or 11 rules to follow to make great radio. 
One of one of the rules was the one I I said earlier, which is don't turn off your tape recorder. Mm-hmm. Another one was um, watch lots of movies and figure out how they do what they do. Because movies have interesting transitions, mm-hmm. they develop characters, and they tell more than one story at once. Uh, mm-hmm. It isn't just one story. It's often several stories that are kind of interweaved and have different timelines. Movies also expand and contract time, which is something that you do all the time on the radio, whether or not you know it. So I would tell people, like, study the way they do this stuff in the movies. Because if you are doing interesting radio, you will be doing these things, too, in your own medium. You know, another role was, you know, sound intelligent, but sound like yourself. The, the notion was, go out and as best you can, capture experience and capture the truth. And then get the essence of that, because you can't just play your tapes at real time. You get the essence of that, and that's what you put on the air. And the goal being that you do it in a way, again, so that the listener isn't just being told about it. They are right in the middle of it. So they feel something. Along with all the thinking, they have an experience. So that's creating a scene when there is a scene, which you can do if you have a whale stranding or a war or a riot. But most of the time we don't have those things. So how do you create a scene if you're covering, say a long-term economic change. It's more difficult. But here's something from Marketplace, talking one of a series that Jocelyn Ford did in 1999, talking about social and economic changes caused by Japan's prolonged recession. Last month, Japan's industrial production surged 3%, a sign that the country's economic slump may finally be coming to an end. But record high unemployment rates have forced corporations to go against time-honored traditions. More and more, younger, more talented executives are being promoted above their senior colleagues. In her occasional visits to an elite members-only club in Tokyo's Ginza district, Marketplace's Jocelyn Ford witnessed the social tension this new practice has created. This is not the typical singing crowd at Sakura's. At $125 a head for a drink and a few snacks, her well-heeled club usually attracts the older set who prefers sentimental traditional songs and have generous expense allowances. Tonight, the Beatles are de rigueur with this group of NEC businessmen. Compared to the usual patrons, the 30- and 40-year-olds are just kids. And sometimes they sounded that way, more like high school students going wild at a commencement party than like salesmen who'd just completed a computer project for a major supermarket chain. In fact, tonight is a sort of coming-of-age party. 42-year-old Nobukazu Nakamaru brought four of his underlings on his own tab. Club proprietress Sakura says it's the first time he's done that. Before, Mr. Nakamaru used to only come with his own bosses, and he was always a little reserved. But a few weeks ago, he was promoted to senior manager, and now he has his own expense allowance. The more surprising thing in age-conscious Japan is that three of his guests were actually older than he. Mr. Nakamaru got the senior management position about three years earlier than average, 
It reflects a new trend in Japan. Promotions are increasingly going to guys who get the job done rather than employees who reach the traditional promotion age. It's not an easy transition. That was clear this evening when one of Mr. Nakamaru's older business associates tried to save face by lying. It happened as hostess Sakura welcomed the party at the door. <laughs> As Sakura congratulated Mr. Nakamaru on his promotion, the older associate extended his hand and said, I haven't seen you in a long time. But Sakura had never met him before, and she wasn't about to play along. I could have said, it's so nice to see you again. But I told him, what do you think you're doing? This is the first time we've ever met. I only know Mr. Nakamaru. That's why he got so angry. It's probably hard for you to understand, but he wanted his friends to think that this is his club, too. It's a matter of male pride to know a member's only place like mine. To be a successful businessman, you need to have a place to entertain your clients. The associate, who never told Sakura his name, swore at her and later apologized. After that, a good time was had by all, but especially by senior manager, Mr. Nakamaru. He says he thinks times are changing. It used to be that only yes-men got ahead. Now he says with the recession requiring companies to get leaner and meaner, people like himself, who are willing to speak straight to their bosses and won't take no for an answer, are finally being recognized and even promoted. Despite the squabble early in the evening, hostess Sakura also had a good time. In total, 12 customers showed up, and she pulled in over $1,000. In the past few months, Sakura says she's had a number of nights like this. It is far short of the 40 customers an evening before the recession kicked in, but she says it's a lot better than last year. From a Ginza bar stool, this is Jocelyn Ford for Marketplace. So scenes from a Ginza bar stool. So you want to talk about social and economic changes in Japan. Uh, the proprietor of a men's club might not have been your first thought, but it turns out to be a really smart way to, to talk about it. And you won't forget a piece like that. And over the course of eight pieces or nine pieces that year, we really got to know Sakura and, and saw the changes in Japan through her eyes. Uh, and at the end of the year, she left to be, she closed the bar and left to become a Buddhist nun. <laughs> Any thoughts on that one? One guy who's really, really good at finding scenes where there are none is uh, David Kestenbaum, who's a science reporter at NPR. And here's a piece where it's about new images from the Hubble Space Telescope, and it up until this point in the piece, it's a fairly standard kind of science piece where the scientists have a press conference and they talk about the images and the importance and what they mean. And it's pretty dull and it's not that real. So here's what he did. One of the oldest ever spotted. We'll have 20 objects that are really interesting. And the remaining 9,990 are foreground junk that we have to remove from the image. That junk is what most people will probably remember this picture for. Non-astronomers care about Hubble because the pictures are spectacular and make them think. One of the striking things about this one is that the galaxies appear at haphazard angles. The picture makes clear there is no up or down to the universe. This is a great picture. This is amazing. I'm serious. 
Jim Bell is a law clerk. He was riding the train from Baltimore to Washington. Most people said, wow, when I showed them the picture. One person said it proved there was no God. Another said there must be life out there. But Bell could not stop looking at it. Amazing, he said. He said it 15 times. Once we get this out to the public, they're going to realize we are small. Maybe this will knock, uh, knock us down a peg to make us think, okay, maybe we have to reach out and just uh, and just love each other right here, you know, because uh, this, is, uh, this is amazing. David Kestenbaum, NPR News, Washington. So Kestenbaum's an absolute master at this. There's a, another piece of his, which is about the sequencing of the genome of a plant called Arabidopsis, which is a fairly common weed. So he goes to the press conference there, and, you know, what do you do with that? And so what he does is he takes the scientist out onto the street, because they say, this is common weed, it's probably growing in your garden. So he takes the scientist out onto the street, and they go rooting through the planters in Manhattan or wherever they were, looking for Arabidopsis. And after you've heard that, you never forget that this is a common weed. So it's a really great way to do it. Another piece of his that I won't play uh, for time reasons deals with the problem of what do you don't have time even to get out and get any sound. He interviews a scientist who's on his cell phone, and the scientist on the cell phone gives a guided tour of a laser... uh, like a particle accelerator type facility, and you can actually hear as the scientist moves from room to room amazingly on a cell phone. You can hear the ambiences change. You can hear the acoustic transitions as he goes from room to room. The scientist describes himself, describes what he's seeing, and it works really well. You, you wouldn't want to hear it every day, but it's a really innovative way of creating a scene when he didn't even leave the studio and couldn't. This is a piece of mine in a sort of similar vein where it's a conference... It's pretty dull stuff. This is about metrology. Now, meteorology is the science of weather. Metrology means measurement, and this is about legal metrology, which is setting international measurement standards. So it's about as dull as it gets. (laughs) And I got there, and the guys that I had arranged to talk to were pretty dull. So... (laughs) I came up with the idea of putting as many units of measurement into it as I could, and it kind of got away on me from there. I'm standing just five meters from the entrance of the Hyatt Regency Hotel, the venue for the Asia-Pacific Legal Metrology Forum. In 37 seconds, I'll go inside, but first, a cautionary tale. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there. In the lead-up to the First World War, Britain had two major rifle manufacturers, Birmingham Small Arms and Enfield. Each made weapons, but each used its own system of measurement. Birmingham Small Arms used the Birmingham inch, and Enfield used the Enfield inch. The two inches were standardized at the start of the war. Shortly thereafter, Australia agreed to contribute small arms to the conflict. A factory was built at Lithgow, New South Wales, and it duly began cranking out 303 rifles and ammunition. But somebody had sent the Australians the wrong inch. It's stories like this one that keep metrologists awake at night. In this business, a miss is as good as a mile. Inside the hotel, I meet Jean-Francois Maginot, director of the International Bureau of Legal Metrology. He told me metrology is all about the consistency of measurements. 
The setting of standards came into its own during the Industrial Revolution, along with a growing need for interchangeable parts. But the roots of legal metrology, he said, go back at least 5,000 years. Legal metrology started when the state had to raise uh, taxes. Not an auspicious beginning, admittedly. But metrology has long been linked with states. Units of capacity in the American colonies at the time of the Revolution included the firkin, hogshead, kilderkin, strike, tierce, pipe, butt, and puncheon. No surprise, then, that the Constitution of the United States mentions the right of Congress to fix the standard of weight and measure right up there alongside the importance of liberty, justice, and tranquility. Weights and measures are also mentioned in the constitutions of Australia, Canada, and might be mentioned in the New Zealand Constitution, if we had one. John Birch, president of the Asia-Pacific Legal Metrology Forum, says it was another political revolution in France that ushered in the metric system. The French measurement system at the time was highly fragmented, was highly inconsistent. The people were revolting about their measurement system. And so during the revolution, they set up a committee to bring in a system which would provide consistency, and that was where the metric system came about. And to this day, the official kilogram, a cylinder of platinum iridium with slightly rounded edges, is locked in a vault in Sèvres, France. The kilogram, the meter, the second, the volt, which is heavier, a pound of feathers or a pound of lead, all the basics have long since been established. This week in Auckland, the metrologists are working on more esoteric questions, standardizing electricity meters, for instance, vehicle speed measuring devices, goods packed by weight and volume, and rice moisture measurements. France has the kilogram, but could New Zealand ever have the official rice standard to lock in a vault? No rice standard like the kilogram, but certainly a rice standard, and that's what we're talking about today. Rice standards are very complex. They vary depending upon the different types of rice. Different measurements are required for them. Rice is hard, but curlier by a country mile are the transparent crustaceans called Daphnia. I visited some time ago a laboratory who used Daphnies, which are uh, microscopic animals, uh, to measure the toxicity of water. And uh, you just put some uh, spoiled water uh, with these animals and you count how many animals die. There are a measuring instrument, but there is no standard. It's enough to drive a metrologist to drink, but John Barker from the Ministry of Consumer Affairs says even there, standardized measurement plays a role. The police took a prosecution against a worker in a hotel who they claimed and the management claimed had uh, defrauded the management. But because uh, spirit dispensing machines are not required to be verified in New Zealand, the uh, court decided that there was no traceable measurement system and therefore the police couldn't uh, prove the fraud. Without measurement, there is no trade. It is the foundation of the economy. Without reliable measurement, there is no trust. It is the foundation of society. To quote Blaise Pascal, the power of man's virtue should not be measured by his special efforts, but by his ordinary doing. It's an important activity, which is the one of the quiet achievers, if you like, of our society. Uh, people just assume that somebody out there is ensuring that uh, the time of day, the length of roads, the weights of goods, uh, uh, everything like that is, can be taken for what it is. Whether you know it or not, metrology is there for you. You say jump, but the Asia-Pacific Legal Metrology Forum says how high. So I've been skipping the discussion to kind of move things along, but does anyone, anyone want to jump in on that one or any of the recent ones we've heard? Uh, a couple of, of samples ago, I was thinking of an experience I had when I was living in Lima, Peru. There had been a hostage-taking that lasted four months, 
And I was doing errands on one particular day in April, and I got a phone call from a friend who said, they're attacking the embassy, they're attacking the embassy. And the, the story was finally ending, and I was completely out of position. And uh, it was about 40 minutes away from my house, and I was probably a half an hour away from where these hostages were being held. And uh, I had to decide whether to go to the place where the news was happening or to go home where I had my computer and my recording stuff and my phone numbers, and everyone had my phone number. And so I decided to go home. And, uh, the, and I ran into the house, and I turned on the TV, and the phone is ringing off the hook from everybody. And NPR News called to get, a, to get me to file, and it was you could see on the local TV that the hostages are streaming out of the of the place where they'd been held for four months. And so I was watching TV, and I said, I can't file now. It's still happening. And they said, well, file live. So Frank Stacio says, so what's happening now? And I'm watching TV saying, well, they're filing out of the Japanese ambassadors. And, uh, you know, so, so what are you seeing now? Well, it's a long line of people. They're relieved. They're making uh, high fives. And you know, I was describing this scene that, was, that I hadn't seen, obviously. I was watching it on local television, and it was also being broadcast live on CNN. Little did they know. Anyway, I felt really weird about having reported this scene that I was watching on television live. And uh, I hung up, and, and five minutes later, Frank Stacio of NPR News called back and said, thank you so much, that's such great live radio. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm always, so this is part confession and part, uh, <laughs> anyway, war story. And he knew you were just watching TV? Well, I tried, I think, probably stammeringly to tell them that, you know, look, look I'm not there, I'm not there, I'm at home, I'm in but no time for that. So we had, anyway. Was it to you but it's, it to you and no, no, it was, I mean, it went out live. So it's just interesting. But actually there was a tiny conclusion from that, and that is that people, I mean, that's the only time I'd ever been called back by the newscast to say what a great job I'd done. <laughs> and, the, uh, you know, I filed hundreds of times, and so clearly they love it when, when real stuff happens and when you're really there. Let me play Beslan, The Hostage Taking. <coughs> this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Block. Russian troops today stormed a school where a group of mostly Chechen gunmen had been holding at least 1,000 hostages. More than 200 people were killed, many of them children. Hundreds of others were injured. And now the questions begin, including whether the raid was planned. NPR's Lawrence Sheets reports from Beslan. Russian security officials had repeatedly said there were no plans to storm the school and that they would pursue negotiations to end the crisis. But parents and relatives of the children and others inside had doubted their word. For one thing, the government consistently made misleading statements about the number of hostages at the school. For two days, Russian officials insisted there were about 400 hostages inside far less than the at least 1,000 which it later emerged. That made people like Ada Gaidukova, whose niece was inside, very suspicious. People are very afraid of storming, and we hope that it will not take place. Do people believe the government when they say there will be no storming? No. Just a few minutes after Ada spoke, the fighting began. It started with two huge blasts. Then volley after volley of automatic weapons fire and loud explosions rang out. It was unclear what exactly set off the deadly chain of events, 
Russian military officials insisted the storming had not been planned. They said commandos took action after the terrorists opened fire on what they said were a group of children... So I won't finish it. I play it mainly so I can tell a war story of someone else's. That aired just a few hours after these events. And so I emailed Lawrence and asked him about the circumstances of filing it because I knew he had to turn it around really quickly. It's a really nice piece. It's just him reading the script, but it's got sound all the way underneath. Most of the time, he's not referring directly to the sound. He's not reading into the sound or setting it up. It's just there as atmosphere for the story he's telling us. This is Lawrence's war story. I've had that sinking feeling many a time. Will we make it? But that day was as close as it's come to the edge. The story was not filed until five minutes to four DC time for the lead story on the four o'clock All Things Considered. The basics are this. I didn't get back to my computer until about 1.30 DC time. Had been running around all day amid the mayhem, the shootout, then the morgue, etc. I've been working in war zones for at least 10 years, and this was as bad as it gets. Too many burned up bodies, parts of bodies, small kids. It was really bad. A local family let me use their little barn off to the side of their house. I had my laptop, a Glensound ISDN, and the sat phone on a table. Things looked okay until an electrical storm knocked out the power about 2.45. There were no doors on the barn, so the equipment started getting soaked right away. Luckily, no damage. The locals set up some candles in old beer bottles, and I kept typing away. Hard to see the mini-disc readout in the dark. The batteries were going dead on the computer and the sat phone, and there was no car around whose battery I could use as an inverter. It was pouring rain and pitch black, and I just couldn't go wandering around looking for a car either. I knew more or less what I wanted, so I used the last of the power to file all the ambient acts to DC. Then it was a matter of trying to find someone with a generator. Finally found one down the street, which some other correspondents had brought in. Hauled the gear down, charged it for 10 minutes. That was about 3.30 DC time, 11.30 at night where I was. The desk called to say that if the tracks weren't filed in 10 minutes, we'd have to do a two-way. I wrote as fast as I could, one of the fastest writes I've ever done. I got the tracks filed just in time, with the line going down one more time due to lightning or something, just to make things interesting. As for the mix, the first cycle, it was a live mix, according to Chris Turpin. I listened to it go out over my cell phone. So that is Deadline Radio. And that is 3 o'clock. Thank you for coming.